Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. For the sake of time, we'll read verse 21 only. First Peter 1, verse 21, Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word, especially as we have been unpacking now for several weeks that, uh, that understanding here of what it means to believe in God, what it means to have proper True, saving faith. So last week we looked at two imitations of saving faith. You'll remember we talked about trembling devil faith. Right? The devils believe and tremble. We talked about the trembling of several across the sweep and scope of scripture. That trembled but not unto casting themselves upon Christ. Uh, We also looked at a proper trembling. That it is proper to tremble even as the people of God, we tremble not because we, we, we believe we are under that judgment and under that, uh, that wrath and anger of God. That's why the devils tremble. That's why Felix trembled. That's why the people at the base of Sinai trembled. But it was not why Moses trembled. Right? It's not why the man in Isaiah 66 trembles. He trembles because he is aware of the great distance between God and himself and yet he does not doubt of Christ's ability to save and to forgive. And so his trembling soul is cast upon Jesus Christ alone. And then we talked about temporal faith or temporary faith. Temporary faith will be divided out, I I believe, as some of these things overlap as we look at Today, uh, miracle faith, and then if we have time, uh, which we probably won't, uh, but then also beyond that, what I call far enough faith. Far enough faith. And then beyond that, we'll talk about community faith, and then we'll talk about a crowded faith. All imitations of saving faith. So that was... uh, what we, uh, what we talked about last week, temporary faith is one that is tempted to look back to some event, right? But then also uh, fails under scrutiny, under affliction, under temptation, under persecution. True saving faith is a faith that perseveres and so it is active in the means of grace. The third that I'd like to discuss with you is miracle faith. Miracle faith. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 for a moment. Verse 5. Well, let's go back to verse 1. And when he had called him his twelve disciples and gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease... Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, 
who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there shall abide ye, and there abide until ye go, until ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Thus far. So now, uh, this miracle faith is an interesting concept i remember back in my evangelical days i didn't have a a hook to hang this on i didn't have a theology to help me with it but notice that judas is among the 12 that go forth and he's commanded to perform miracles now i think a reasonable understanding an implication of the passage is that that's what he did he went out with the 12 and did the same thing that the rest of the 12 did it wasn't like you know coming back because remember that they went two and two, right? Coming back that, uh, you know, somebody, hey, how'd it go for you? It didn't work for me. <laughs> I don't think we heard that. I don't think the disciples did that. I think that Judas went forth with the authority from Christ to perform miracles. And I think that we see the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord, we've, done, we've cast out devils and done many mighty works in thy name. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. In fact, that is one of the, one of the true species of miracle faith, isn't it? That this, these men, when they come before the Lord to be judged, they're not pleading the righteousness of Christ. They're not pleading their own inability. Rather, it's an ability of theirs that they come pleading. And that's the telltale sign that they have partaken of some other faith than saving faith. They don't come speaking about Christ and his righteousness. They don't come falling down, trembling at his feet, saying, Lord, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Or if I could just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. Rather, they come saying, look at what we've done. Or even, look at what you've done by us. And beloved, that falls horribly short. And so those men in Acts, in, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. And they are cast out into weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So there are many that believed on Christ, number one, for the miracles which he did. And we read about that in John chapter 2. Because of the time, we'll not take the time to turn there, but in 23 through 25, it says that many believed on Jesus for the miracles that he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. They were happy to receive the benefits, but they did not cast themselves on Christ. They did not recognize the great need that they had, that they must go out of themselves to Christ. Beloved, in all of this study, in all that we are called to do here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2, when we hear that we are um, uh, having faith that can move mountains, but we have not love, and that love there is that proper saving love toward God and toward men. That is a fruit of our faith, our true faith, saving faith in Christ. It is pointless. It is fruitless at that point move a mountain if you will but you are not able to move your heart one whit toward Christ he moves your heart that you come and you're found at his feet and you say to him O Lord I have nothing to offer you'll remember a few years back we preached Uh, a sermon called The Poison of Eden. What does the Lord do? What does the Spirit of God do in, in taking a person out of the natural tree, the olive tree, using Paul's uh, illustration in uh, Romans 11 and engrafting it into that, that spiritual tree? What does he do? What does the Spirit of God do? Well, he must do what an olive tree Uh, tender would do he must strike and strike and strike upon that branch until it is severed from the natural tree and beloved these false faiths they are folks that rest in a strike or two from the spirit of god right there is some motion it is a spiritual motion cannot be denied These men, all 12 of them, including Judas, went out and through spiritual motions, cast out devils and healed the sick. But for at least one of them, Judas, that was done apart from him ever being grafted into the olive tree by the Spirit of God. I think Thomas Boston is really good in this. He uses that illustration and the, and the Spirit of God striking and striking and striking. And with every stroke, the natural man, he's ready to give up a little more. You know? The first stroke comes and he says, Oh, wow, I'm really a sinner. I need to stop doing that. Or God will never receive me. And so he changes his habits. Through some spiritual motion. Then. Whack. Here comes another. And what does he say now? He says. Oh. Yeah. I, I get it. Um, there are a lot of other things I've left undone. So. I need to get after those. And so he does. And he's still. Connected to the natural tree. 
strike, it comes again. And he said, oh, wow, even my best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. Well, I know what I'll do then. I'll give him myself. Surely that's something that God will appreciate. I surrender all, how the old hymn writer put it. That's the saving stroke, right? No. No, you don't bring anything. Not even yourself. And then, after a few other strokes, things falling away and falling off more and more, finally there's that final stroke that the Spirit of God brings down. And it is that severing stroke. And it goes to the bottom of his soul. And he looks in that gaping chasm and he sees that there's really nothing of value there. And that is when we change the illustration. And no longer is he a man at the base of a dam that is breaking before him and he puts a little bit of mortar here and a little bit of mortar there. It's when he throws away his trowel and he throws away his hod and his, and his uh, easel and he rests. He gives himself to Christ. Truly. Not with any value, but with complete confidence that Christ will take him up. Every stroke then that these men performed. Oh, there was another miracle. Oh, another miracle. Oh, another miracle. They all were stroke upon stroke upon Judas, yet he never was severed from the natural tree. But we might not stop the conversation there. We might take it a little bit farther than that even. Because not only did Judas heal and have that authority from Christ to heal. But in John chapter 2, we spoke of people who believed in Christ in such a way that he was a healer, that he had power to heal. But Christ did not commit himself to them even. They were, like we said a moment ago, plenty happy with the benefits. But we can take it even a step farther than that, beloved. There were others that received the healing touch of Christ and yet were not saved. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. We begin our reading in verse 11. And it came to pass as he went through Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered into a certain village and there met him ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was cleansed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet and or giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that returned to give glory to God Save this stranger. 
And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Not just cleansed, but whole. What is the difference between the Samaritan leper and the other nine? Well, we don't know how many of the other ones were Samaritans. Some of them were Galileans. He was passing through a city somewhere in that north country, perhaps not directly through Samaria. You'll remember that if these men were lepers, they were outside of the normal towns and cities. They had to stay by themselves. It is interesting that Jesus passes close enough by that city to hear those men's cries. And so... Jesus tells them all, go and show yourself to the priest. And know what? They're all healed. All ten. All of them had at least enough faith to call upon the name of Christ for healing. Only one of them had faith to come and prostrate himself at the feet of Christ and give him thanks. It is to that one, Jesus says, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Whole. And I take that to mean whole every whit. And I think that's why Jesus puts it that way. First he makes the distinction between that leper and the rest of them. Right? By saying only one returned to give glory to God. And where is he found? He is found at the feet of Christ giving him thanks. And so I think whole there is far beyond mere healing of his body. Well, beloved, uh, listen to a quotation from James Durham. This faith of miracles availeth not alone to salvation, because it acts not on Christ holding forth in the promises as a Savior to save from sin, but on Christ as having power and ability to produce such effect which may be where there is no quitting of a man's own righteousness. And if there be not grace in the person that hath it, it becomes rather an occasion of pride. I could do miracles. Certainly Lord, the Lord will save me. He did a miracle on me. Certainly He will save me. And so one can use that as a, as a point of pride instead, rather than acquitting of himself or what we would say in our day is a moving out of ourselves to Christ. And that I think is exactly what happened here in Luke chapter 17 with the one leper that was cleansed. Now there is a cheap species if if miracle faith is a cheap imitation of saving faith there's a cheap species even of miracle faith today. In these quote deliverance ministries. People come to this church or they come to that church. And why do they go so? Why do they do so? Because they can be delivered. Delivered of what? Oh well whatever it is. You know the demon of drink. Right? You can be delivered from whatever it is that ails you. You can be delivered here and delivered there. and, And you can be delivered Uh, every Lord's Day if you want to come down to the front and be delivered. (coughs) The difficulty is that those things that they're delivered from, well, they come up again and again 
and again. This miracle faith is a species of what we've called before mercenary faith. We come to Christ for his benefits rather than coming to him. We come to, uh, to have him add to our wealth rather than coming to him as the beggars that we truly are. So then miracle faith involves the offense of the cross, doesn't it? The offense of the cross is minimized or mollified or mitigated, if you will, right? It's not the offense of the cross, really, that comes into focus. It's really finding out what your problems are and Jesus becomes a divine problem solver instead. Do you get angry? Jesus can deliver you from that. And when he does, you can say, hey, Jesus must love me. He's delivered me from my anger. Beloved, that's not saving faith. In fact, like Durham says, it becomes an occasion of pride. Look at me. I'm a better Christian now. My anger is gone. And so miracle faith ends up running in exactly the opposite direction. By the way, (laughs) the nine lepers that had miracle faith, they ran in the opposite direction of the other leper that returned to the feet of Christ. We must not come to Christ for his benefits, beloved. We must come to him because he alone is able to deliver us from sin and its consequences. And we do so not by, quote, receiving his benefits, although we don't forget any of them, but by coming into communion with him. Jesus said, I will sup with him and he with me. It's not heaven we're after. It's Christ we're after. As we've said before and as we've learned from many of our Puritan fathers who taught us If wherever Christ is found, that is where I want to be. If Christ is in heaven, then give me heaven. Not for heaven's sake, but for Christ's sake. And so this is the the bane of that miracle faith. We can be delivered from any addiction or from any affliction. And still our guilt may remain apart from the cleansing power of Christ to wash away Not the filth of the flesh, not a medical difficulty, not anger or psychological difficulty, but the sinful stain upon our soul. It is Christ alone that is able to cleanse us from sin. And so these many deliverance ministries make their bones by speaking of people being delivered from the demon of this or that or this various addiction whether it's a somatic addiction, right, a bodily addiction, or a psychological addiction, a mental addiction. Oh, well, I've been delivered from that. Surely I must be saved. That is to stop short, beloved. It is only by coming to Jesus Christ as Savior, as sacrifice, as surety. We don't want to make the focus our addictions. We want to be addicted to Jesus Christ. And him as our savior. And so many of these ministries that lead men in them. They say that it is by the power of Christ. That these deliverances take place. That's right. That's true. 
Even the lepers were cleansed by the power of Christ. But only one returned to show that he had true saving faith by giving glory to God and not resting in his healing. Of course, the remedy for this is focusing upon sin and judgment and not temporal deliverance. This is to cheapen the Lord Jesus into a circus master, a huckster, who can cleanse you of your infirmities rather than give you a new heart. Oh, beloved, don't we need a new heart? Don't we need to be cleansed from sin and all its effects? Don't we need the righteousness of Christ and the sanctification of Christ and the holiness of Christ? Don't we want that that righteousness infused, sorry, imputed and all those other things infused in our soul such that without, um, without uh, adherence to benefits, we cleave to Christ and Him alone. Beloved, would you come to Christ if it meant being a leper? You see, the one who partakes of miracle faith cannot make that decision, can he? Would you come to Christ if he tells you it'll never get any better? Would you come to him then? Those are the telltale signs that we've partaken of a miracle faith if we come to Christ only for benefits. We can go through person after person after person in Scripture, right? What did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Let's turn there. And let's look at Paul's view of miracle faith. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. What was Paul's view of temporary, or sorry, miracle faith? I've got this thorn in the flesh, Lord. Three times I besought the Lord, he says, that it might depart from me. Can I give you the short answer? The Lord said, no. May I say that someone who partakes only of miracle faith will go away with sadness hearing the no from Christ. He came to Christ for healing, for deliverance. I I want to be delivered from the demon of anger. I want to be delivered from this. By the way, Paul uses this messenger of Satan, Ankylos to Satana, the angel of Satan, sent to buffet me. Notice what Paul doesn't do. Get out of here. Be cast out into the next region or whatever. He doesn't do any of that silliness. Three times I besought the Lord that it might depart from me. And I got an answer I wasn't expecting. He said, no. 
And the reason he said no was because you having this thorn in the flesh will keep you close to me. It will keep you at my feet, giving glory to God like the Samaritan leper. If I release you from this, you will be more tempted to stray with the nine rather than the one. And Paul said, then I will glory in my infirmities. I will be glad not to be delivered. I will be glad to suffer under my afflictions and weaknesses, whether they be somatic or psychological. I'll be glad to suffer under that if by them I may gain, win, and keep, and hold, and cleave, and cling to Christ. Sometimes, beloved, the miracle faith drove men away from Christ. They got their healing and they didn't come back. Right? It's not, it's not saving faith. Just because power, spiritual power was displayed doesn't mean it's a saving power. And so... You'll talk to people, they'll want to give you their testimony. The Lord delivered me from this, and he delivered me from that. And this is how I know I'm saved. May I say, beloved, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Lord didn't deliver Paul so that he might know he was saved. The Lord didn't deliver Jeremiah from the sort of persecution that he might know that he belonged to Christ. The Lord didn't deliver Isaiah from an unsuccessful ministry to preach until eyes be closed and ears be stopped that he might know that he won Christ. And so the evangelical prophet gives us the fullest picture in the Old Testament of Christ. No, it is not through deliverance that we are saved. It is through Jesus Christ and him alone. His work, His sacrifice. We must then flee to Him, not to healing. We must flee to Him, not to riches. We must flee to Him and not to deliverance from anger. If deliverance from anger means that it's a good sign of your salvation, beloved, then the psychologists and the psychiatrists are preaching Christ and we know that they're not. But they can use techniques that God will be pleased to use to reduce someone's anger. It is only through union with Christ, sitting at his feet, giving glory to God through him, (coughs) receiving of his freely given benefits, and recognizing that we have nothing at all to bring to him. But everything comes of him. So what is the remedy then for this miracle faith? Union with Christ is the only thing that can deliver a sinner from the wrath to come. Any temporal affliction, whether deliverance comes ordinarily, extraordinarily, or miraculously, pales in comparison to our just deserts and deliverance from affliction in this life um, only have cost many professors their eternal felicity in Christ. They came to Christ to be delivered from something, and they were. And so, rather than coming to Christ as Savior, they came to him as a wonder worker. Secondly, it is to be remembered in combating miracle faith that Christ as a healer of the body 
or as a restorer of some temporal good is far different from Christ as Savior from the wrath to come. It is not a temporal deliverance, but eternal, for an infinite and eternal crime or deficit. We must remember the judgment to come, that we will all stand before that holy judge. At that time, when we stand before him, will we plead our miracles, or will we plead him as our advocate instead of our judge? You see, beloved, this is what we must do. We must turn away from that miracle faith, which can only heal the body or the, or the soul, the, the psyche of, its, of certain defects. But let's not, let me make this memorable. Let's not take those healings of defects as effects of true saving faith. That's what the man does when he believes in Christ for his miracle working power, but not for him as Savior. So miracle faith then, I think, has led many astray. And those uh, species of it. That, um, let me close with, with, with an illustration. We're already up, up against time. Uh, don't watch a lot of contemporary movies. I, I, I just don't find them helpful. Um, but there was one movie I watched a few years back. It was about a man who was a minister of the gospel. Uh, I don't know what denomination they, they didn't say. But he wore a collar. You could tell probably a Lutheran minister, but I don't know. I, I don't want to say because there was no uh, indication. It was a strange, strange movie, uh, science fiction about a, an alien invasion of the world. This man was a, was a minister of the gospel, and he had just lost his wife. And his wife, uh, before she died, she had been in a horrible car accident, and he came to see her at the accident scene, and the policeman was there, and he knew him, and he said, it was a small town kind of thing, and he said to him, you know, uh, I can't pull the car back from her. If I do, she'll be dead immediately. I waited until you got here, because she's just about there. Uh, she may speak to you, but it's probably just nothing. And so she told him some things before she died, and they didn't make any sense to him. And he figured, he just chalked that up to her being delirious through the accident. Then the aliens came. <laughs> and then beyond that, there were the three things that she told him, while they seemed random and without knowledge at all, they all seemed to make sense. They played into that deliverance that he needed from the aliens even. In this movie. And the movie was called. Signs. And what did this minister of the gospel do. That, that at the death of his wife. Was about to lose his faith. You know there's a very dramatic scene. Where he takes off his collar. And puts it away. You know puts it in a drawer. He's not going to look at it again. And he stopped preaching. And he stopped ministering. His brother even confronts him over it. He's lost his faith. But then these three signs take place. And the end of the movie, of course, is a happy ending, right? Because he got what he needed. He got his deliverance from the aliens. And now we see him back in the pulpit. Beloved, that's miracle faith. It's exactly miracle faith. It was one of the worst movies I'd ever seen to talk about devotion to the Lord Jesus. But most of them are. But at least this one had an illustration to it. That you could take a look at this man's faith and you could say, He just believes in coincidences, not in Christ. 
Don't look at the coincidences. And many of you, perhaps, I've, I've, I've had some friends that, that have talked to unbelievers, and they thought they were believers because, you know, God did this for me, and he did that for me. He did a miracle for me. It was a coincidence, an extraordinary thing. And many find their hope in that. And that is far short of coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And even if I have to abide like the Apostle Paul or Jeremiah or Isaiah under my afflictions, it's okay if those afflictions bring me to you. That's what saving faith is. There's nothing short of that. And that's an imitation of saving faith, this miracle faith. And we, and we speak about it today so that you might know if you've imbibed in miracle faith, it's okay, you're in good hands, but know that you've got a ways to go yet. Keep using the means. Keep calling upon the Lord. Let's rise and call upon the name of the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee. O Lord, we see how easily led astray we are as finite creatures. And that we can be satisfied, as we heard last week, with trembling. When many trembled, not coming to Christ. That we can be satisfied with, uh, like the man in Matthew chapter 13, who receives the word with joy and springs up immediately, but then doesn't last. That we can also be contented with benefits and goods. Coming to Christ as a, as a worker of good, as a miracle worker even. Yet not as our Savior, not as our sacrifice, our substitute, our surety. Not as one who gave his life for us to save us from everlasting death. Oh Lord, we pray, deliver us from any substandard faith, although it is called faith in Scripture. And Lord, help us like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 to get rid of everything to win Christ and to be found in Him, not having our own righteousness which is through the law, but that which is by the faith of Christ, that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto death, if by any means we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. O Lord, that we might indeed win Christ. Lord, help us not to stop. And Lord, we pray that thy spirit would not stop his striking upon us until such time as we are severed from the natural tree and grafted into Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.